Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Art. I'm your host, Ricarda, and today I'm talking to Stacey Pearson about her latest book, Private Collecting, Exhibitions, and the Shaping of Art History in London, the Burlington Finance Club. In this book, Stacey reveals the fascinating history of one of the most refined and influential fine art clubs in London. Drawing on the club's near-complete yet understudied archives at the National Art Library at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, Stacey focuses on the club's exhibition practices. In this podcast, Stacey and I talk about how the private club shaped public taste, the professionalization of curators, as well as art history as a discipline, the notion of quote-unquote world art, and so much more. The book is really an indispensable resource for anyone interested in art market studies and the interconnectedness of the public and the private, the formation of private clubs and public taste, and the network of agents who maneuver between them. I encourage you all to read the book, and now please do enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Art. I'm your host, Ricarda, and I'm here today to talk to Stacey Pearson about her latest book, Private Collecting, Exhibitions, and the Shaping of Art History in London, the Burlington Fine Arts Club. Welcome to the show, Stacey. Thank you very much, Ricarda. Um, now, before we jump right into the book, why don't you start out by introducing yourself? Well, I am currently a senior lecturer in the History of Art Department at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And for many years, I was a curator and then transferred to teaching about 10 years ago. And I specialize in ceramic history, um, but I also teach aspects of Chinese art and um, art history and art historiography. Great. And then tell us how you came to write the book on on the Burlington Finance Club, basically. Well, this book actually had a very long kind of developmental period because it was about 15 years ago when I was researching a particular collector whose name is Sir Percival David. And I was researching him for a dissertation project and looked into everything I could about him because he didn't have an archive. So one of the things I discovered is that he was a member of a number of art institutions in London. And I kept seeing references to one particular one, which was the Burlington Fine Arts Club. And at the time I remember thinking, oh, well, that's interesting. I tried to research it and there wasn't really anything written about it. And then I put it aside. And it was only much later after I'd been researching other collectors other types of collected objects that I kept seeing this club being mentioned. So I did a quick search and discovered that the club's archive, a complete archive, still existed. And it was in the library of the Victoria and Albert Museum. And so I decided when I got a chance, I would focus on it as a singular subject and just investigate it. And that's how it all started. Excellent. I'm actually going to ask a follow up question, um, which is, how well, how complete are the archives at the NIL, at the National Art Library? Um, and how long did it take you to kind of go through all the archival material and, and kind of organize your arguments accordingly? 
Well, I think any archivist would say no archive is ever complete. <laughs> but in terms of the archive of a club, this one was, I think, as complete as most because it had not only the meeting minutes, it had members' registers, it actually had the members' ballot papers, that is, the papers that were prepared to propose membership. Um, it contained as much information as we would need to kind of paint a picture of the club, its activities, and its members. I was also very fortunate that it had been very well documented. So the librarians in the Victorian Albert Museum in the National Art Library, as it's called, had fully cataloged it. There were also um, copies of the original manuscript versions of numbers, a number of the papers, which was good because the papers start in 1866. So they were not in you know, ideal condition for handling extensively. So I could work from photocopies. I had extensive catalog records. So I think it was really kind of the best circumstances I could hope for. Excellent, thank you. Mm. Um, and now we're going to start um, talking about the actual book, the, the content of the book. Um, and it's basically divided according to um, exhibition subjects, if you will. So tell us something about the structure of the book. Why did you decide to choose to focus on um, exhibitions of the Burlington Fine Arts Club? Well, when I first came across their club, it was in references to exhibitions that they mounted. When I went back and decided to focus on the club as a book project, um, I discovered that while it was really wonderful to have a complete archive, a fairly complete archive of material, that was also a challenge because there was so much data to manage and to interpret and to try to, to construct a consistent narrative from. I could easily have written a history of the club um, as a kind of sociological study that itself would be interesting. But I felt that I, what the club was unique for and therefore important for was its emphasis on exhibition, on exhibitionary activity. And that was what ended up framing my whole approach to the study. So I limited the history of the club to one chapter as a kind of introduction to the subject. And then I decided to structure the rest of the book around key groups of exhibitions, which I felt um, were the most either innovative or reflective or even groundbreaking in terms of art historical practice, in terms of categories of art, and in terms of collecting. Now, another challenge, of course, was the number of members of the club. You know, over the course of its, you know, almost 90-year history, there were hundreds, if not thousands of members. And I wanted to highlight that in some respects, because when I looked through the members list, there were so many surprising names that arose from it, um, not just individuals, but their social positions. I mean, there were prime ministers who were members, there were religious individuals, um, critics, artists. Um, of course, Whistler ended up being a very fun slide project on this one. So what, did, what could I do with all these members? And I was really struggling because the members were the ones who generated, populated and defined the exhibitions and wrote the catalogs. So I had to mention a lot of people in relation to every single exhibition I focused on, but that became really unwieldy in terms of how to structure a readable book. And I have to say, it was one of my anonymous peer reviewers who suggested that I take most of that biographical information out of the core text and put it in an appendix. So what resulted is a kind of um, 
dictionary of, I guess, my selection of key members. And I can see that that's quite useful, not just for art historians, but also for the market, because um, many of these people, as I said before, have had an important impact on provenance. Excellent. And I, yeah, this is definitely such a valuable resource, you know, for anybody in the field. And I think what it's also revealing is that in art market studies today, we tend to kind of focus on individual collectors, you know, but what this book and the appendix as well is shown is that it was in fact a network and not just a national network, but an international one as well. So it was full of surprises. And I was really surprised finding Wilhelm von Borde's uh, name in there, uh, the first director of the uh, Berlin State Museums, then Prussian um, State Museums. And so the I think it's really the, the network of art collectors that weren't so much in competition as much as kind of incorporate, co cooperating with one another. Well, actually, that's a good point. There was no indication of any competition whatsoever. Um, you could see sometimes in catalog essays um, some disagreement over approaches to the subject. Often that was when they brought in outside experts, um, or experts as they defined them. But these collectors, as members of the club, were not competitive in any way that I could see. And that in itself is significant because we do tend to focus on collectors as individuals, but we do not look at collecting groups. And I think this is a really under-recognized area of collecting that should be the focus of more scholarship. And I hope this book might lead to that and be useful for people who want to pursue such studies in the future. Let's talk about part one, the introduction. Uh, where you kind of talk about the beginnings of the club, its predecessor. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about the foundation, as I said, and tell us more about the gentleman, John Charles Robinson, who founded the initial uh, Fine Arts Club and then its subsequent remake into the Burlington Arts Club, Fine Arts Club. Well, um, as the introduction notes, um, the Burlington Fine Arts Club was kind of the successor club to something called the Fine Arts Club. And really the person behind both of them was John Charles Robinson, who ultimately became the most influential, I would argue, but principal curator of what would become the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, that museum genesis was not as smooth as one would expect, um, but it ultimately started as something called the South Kensington Museum because of where it was located in London. And Robinson effectively was the one who brought in a lot of the exhibited material that formed the collections of the later BNA. He was a collector himself. And as I discovered also what you might call a dealer, but that sort of combined approach to the management of artworks was not unusual at the time. Um, he had a very specific idea about um, how a museum should present objects to the public and also about the role of museum. That is, the role of museum should be to bring artwork to the attention of the public. And what he meant by that is artworks in private collections. So he was really an important interface between the private collectors and the museum public in you know, Victorian London. That's fascinating. And I hope we get to talk about this um, private and public um, a bit more throughout the podcast. But let me ask, why do you think it was in this particular, um, during this particular time and place that such a club was founded? Was there any kind of particular need um, for such a social space apart from the one 
just mentioned? Well, yes, there was a particular need for an, an additional social space. There wasn't a pre-identified need for this particular type of social space because they are the ones who invented it. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is they did start as a very traditional gentleman's club. Um, they weren't the first gentleman's club, but the 19th century was really kind of the era of gentlemen's clubs in principally in London. So that idea, of course, was, you know, out there. They were members of other gentlemen's clubs. I think what was new was combining their interest in art with their desire to be members of a gentlemen's club. And I would say it, it was principally due to people like Robinson and other founder members who had been members of the Fine Arts Club, its predecessor, which was set up by Robinson principally to bring in those private collectors and their objects to the nascent Victorian Albert Museum. And I think it was really frustration with the um, composition and the activities and, and the actual popularity of the first club that led to a kind of splinter group um, setting up a second club, which developed into something I think you know they didn't anticipate at the time, but as I've shown in a book, ended up being an influential and lasting, a lasting influence up to the present day. So in the second part of the book, which is indeed the most comprehensive and you draw on vast archival material, as we already uh, discussed, um, you analyze the different exhibitions mounted and the practice of displaying and discussing art within the club um, and, and its wider audiences, of course, as well. The chapters are divided according to painting and prints in Europe and Britain, um, which make up for around, which made up for around 50% of the overall exhibitions um, at the club. And then ceramics East and West, then the third chapter, Persia, Egypt and India, and four, Indigenous and Primitive Art as well. So the club's interest in these broad areas, or world art as you, as you, as you call it, is telling because it seems to be unique for the Burlington Fine Arts Club. And also because we today believe it to be a more recent phenomenon or trend in, in art history. How do you ex- explain this broad um, interest in world art of the club? Well, I think the, the club itself um, led me to discover that there was this broad interest among collectors. And collectors in Britain at that time usually didn't really specialize. However, we always assume that they did, and that's how we frame collecting and collecting history. I didn't, I wasn't aware of that at the time, but it was the club was more reflective of that rather than generating it. What they generated was um, art historical and curatorial approaches to what I guess you would call world art at that time. So they brought together in one space collectors from all different social circles, as well as collectors who belong to a lot of other collecting groups, collecting groups that we normally do not associate with art history. So that also is reflective of the actual circumstances of the time, but hadn't been recognized before because we needed the prism of the club to be able to see that, or at least I did. And another unique characteristic of the club was that it displayed the art um, as well as inherited luxury household objects, for example, um, of its wealthy members um, for its members. So it was mostly this kind of 
closed off group, even though, as I said, it was open to the public and there were some women involved as well. So, um, yeah, what do you believe um, were some of the ideas and intentions that drove the decisions of um, the members of categorizing, displaying and classifying the arts from everywhere? Well, that was a really interesting thing for me to um, discover, but also try to interpret because, as you know, as we've noted, there were the interests of members were so wide ranging, yet they were obviously all very wealthy because the club itself is very expensive to join and maintain one's membership too, because it was a gentleman's club. So it had to pay for the services that you expect in a gentleman's club. Nonetheless, their main activity was exhibiting artworks, artworks owned by private collectors brought together through the club, but also in the club. So the club as a space for exhibitions also became an important agent in all of this. And it was in putting together their exhibitions and having this idea that they wanted to share their objects, not just with the members, but more publicly through the framework of an exhibition, you know, by the standard definition of that, it forced them or encouraged them to try to approach these exhibitions more thematically. And I think that's what led to them thinking about the material in more curatorial terms and in more interpretive terms, which really was applied art history, but they would never have considered it that, apart from the few members who were you know, practicing art historians. So it was really bringing together the aims of the club, the members and their desire to show what they collected, um, and then interpret that and present it to a wider public that led to this exhibitionary approach. And do you think it was kind of, um intentional that it was self-promotional as well to oh, of course yeah i mean uh, yes i mean this that was all part of it um sharing one's work is also sharing one's um identity as a collector as in a number of the collectors of course were very prominent aristocrats politicians who would have had their country seat and that was another attraction of this club it was a london base for a number of these people so in these country homes, they had magnificent works of art. But what's interesting is that they had they shared this desire to present these works of art to the general public away from the domestic space. And so, yes, the club became you know a location for that, but also a medium for expression of their identity. And this ties in very nicely with something you go on to talk about as well, which is that they really saw everything they exhibited as art. So whereas today, maybe some of these objects that were exhibited at, at the club wouldn't be considered fine art anymore. Um, they were at the time, and this is quite um, unique as well about the club as far as I understand it. And in the next part of the um, book, In Ceramics East and West, you show how the Burlington Fine Arts Club um, was yeah, unusual in treating ceramics as art, as I just said, um, and how it were in fact the oriental ceramics in particular that were um, most popular in terms of uh, the numbers of displays and the increasing exposure to new material, especially in the case of Chinese ceramics, led to increasing knowledge as well, of course. Um, so tell us what had changed um, at that time and maybe 
you could do that by kind of talking about early Chinese ceramics display or the Song Turn, as you call it, which I love. Well, ceramics, as we've seen in the book and as fairly well known, um, is a medium that was perhaps unusually popular in Britain. And I would say it still is. I mean, we still have the legacy of that in things like the Oriental Ceramic Society and a lot of collectors groups. So while the founder members of the club were generally more interested in prints and painting, um, they also owned a lot of ceramics. And ceramics were also considered at that time um, the kind of material that you would use, but you would also display. Um, and so ceramics were effectively in the background of many people's lives, particularly the upper classes in England. So when the club started doing exhibition, um, they saw themselves as art collectors and collector members of the club. For them, collecting was about thinking of all the objects one collects as art. Now we query that term today, we challenge it, um, we try to find ways of defining it, but they would have seen it in, from a very different perspective. They didn't have a problem with the word art. Art was a way of describing the, all the things that they collected. But what was new was their publications defining it as art. So these publications were the printed record of their exhibition. And so anything that they collected and we've seen how broad their collecting interests were became art as a result of that. And so they didn't think it was revolutionary that they were describing, um, you know, Pacific sculptures as works of art or even ceramics as works of art, because to them it was obvious we collected it. Therefore, it was art. And in terms of Chinese ceramics, what was interesting, and I happen to know a lot more about this because this is really my main field, is that in doing so, they ended up being real pioneers in shaping um, subfields of art and as it happens, art history. So for Chinese ceramics, they were one of the first, if not the first, to show publicly and define Chinese ceramics as early Chinese ceramics. Now today we would define that slightly differently, but for them, they were showing what they felt was material that people hadn't seen before. It was literally and figuratively fresh out of China. Um, and it had such a lasting impact because potters, visited these exhibitions, in particular the 1910 early Chinese pottery and porcelain exhibition. And they have noted in various um, journals and publications how inspirational that exhibition was for their own work. So for the club, early Chinese ceramics was something that they were interested in, but also a pioneering approach to that field. Excellent. Um, let's delve into this a little bit more because um, as you already said, um, the the club was really influential in not just inspiring the market and the market trends, but also institutional collecting, um, from which it was officially independent. But ultimately, the beneficiaries of the publications, the exhibitions and whatnot were museums and universities, so public institutions. And I'd like to know... Um, you know, what you think about this kind of seeming dichotomy or double agency or intersection, if you will, between the private and the public, because many of the Burlington Fine Arts Club members were actually, as you already mentioned, part of a uh, public institution as well. 
Well, the boundaries between public and private when it comes to art institutions are today quite clear cut. In the 19th century in England, those boundaries really did not exist. And the Victorian Albert Museum is a perfect example of that because it was founded with some collection, but most of the collections appeared initially as loans from private collectors. And of course, the club had institutional as well as private members throughout its history. And the founder members, you know, 50% of them were actually members of institution. So they, again, as they would never have seen any problem with categorizing everything as art, they would never have seen that there should be a boundary between public and private. And what I discovered in studying the club is just how important private collectors were to so much of what we consider to be actual institutional art history and institutional collecting. It primarily was developed through private collectors, and private collectors also, as a result, had a huge impact on the development of academic disciplines, university departments, museum departments, even museum exhibition programs. So that's what this club has revealed. And it's, I think what you reveal quite beautifully in the book throughout your research is that it wasn't just individual collector. Obviously, it was the individual collector, but they were really interacting and exchanging extensively amongst each other. And for the Burlington Finance Club, it wasn't so much making money out of you know um, exhibitions or publications, but it was much more a collaborative kind of effort. Or how would you describe it? The, well, if I could say one thing about money, that was that was probably their downfall. Um, because they were effectively amateurs in the traditional sense, they were organizing exhibitions that were very interesting. And they would try to make really interesting publications about those exhibitions. But they apparently, as I can see from the accounts that survived, were not very good at budgeting in terms of publications, in terms of insurance for exhibitions, everything that we would normally build into a budget for an exhibition, they would do very casually, if at all. So in fact, they lost money all the time. But as you say, that wasn't their purpose. They weren't thinking about, at least intentionally thinking about selling their objects as a result of being on display. However, it is clear that with some exhibitions where the main exhibited material came from external members or even a single collection, which did happen. On occasion, subsequent to the exhibition, these collections were sold. But that was noted at the time among members as being somewhat unfavorable. So they were aware of that side of thing. Um, but when it came to you know, the finances, it really was not something that they thought about at all. Now, Within the book, you go on to talk about Persia, Egypt, and India. You, you can see we're doing this very loosely. Um, and each nation or culture, if you will, was considered of interest to the club members and Sinazar, as we've discussed. Could you say, say a few more words on how members display their works from cultures other than their own um, and how they found ways of classifying them within the kind of familiar art historical framework? Well, the first thing I need to say that those chapter titles are taken directly from the titles of exhibition. So I'm using terms that I probably, as, as an art historian, would not be comfortable using you know, more generally, but I wanted to represent the voice of the club itself, you know, the authentic voice of the club. So when it 
came to exhibiting material that you know we might call non-Western, they actually exhibited it in the same way they exhibited Florentine painting or early Chinese ceramics, because they had this dedicated space for exhibition, which I realized in the writing and research for this book, the space is equally important because the space was designed to look like a very fancy domestic interior. So everything they exhibited in that space became a similar type of object as a result of it. And that colored not only how they interpreted it, but how people responded to it, the reception of those objects from viewers. It also, I would argue, shaped the way they wrote about the material in their um, exhibition catalog. Now, sometimes they would hire specialists in the field to write introductory essays. Introductory essays, which of course are standard today, were introduced you know, later in their exhibition program. The first catalog didn't have them, but once they started using that particular format, um, they would present their interpretive framework and their approach to the subject in those introductory essays. Sometimes they would specifically um, name check art historians or connoisseurs. They would cite what we would consider to be art historical texts, like the great art collections of Britain. Um, but for the most part, they were sort of relying on their own instincts to come up with an art historical, what we would think of as an art historical interpretation of the material. So often that lack of constraint in terms of formal art history, art history or even an institution led to new insights and different ways of thinking about the material, which is why I think they were so pioneering. And so they could present the first exhibition, survey exhibition of Indian art, as they called it in Britain, the first exhibition of Persian art, the first exhibition of early Chinese pottery and porcelain. And even in terms of what they called primitive art, they were very pioneering in many respects in the way they presented it. Excellent. Um, this also leads me to think, you know, this must go hand in hand with kind of the development, the rise of the curator within art institutions such as museums um, in the 19th century. Um, because previously, you know, it wasn't necessarily the curator who got to choose which objects were displayed and even um, acquired. Um, but then in the 19th century, there's, we see a kind of rise of, of this um, job. Um, and so this must be closely linked to, to the activities of the club as well, since they seem to be promoting this connoisseurial approach to art. Yeah, um, of course, we could argue today that we've come back to that situation where curators are given less power and ability to choose what they want to display, um, speaking for my colleagues in museums. But certainly, yes, in the later 19th century, there was this development of the curator as a professional connoisseur in a kind of museum or institutional context. And certainly the club was performing similar activities. I couldn't find any references in their um archive to just describing themselves as curators. Occasionally they would talk about curatorial work, but it was very much, as you say, connoisseurship, which was the prism through which they defined themselves and the activities of the club, which is interesting in itself because we have so many professionals involved in this club who are championing um, connoisseurship. Connoisseurship 
as you know, a kind of self-identity in terms of collecting, but also as a legitimate art historical practice. And that's something I think people would be surprised to discover because of course, in the art historical world, particularly the academic art historical world, we're, we're reluctant to um, credit too much to connoisseurship because it's seen as too subjective. But the perspective in the 19th century and certainly in the club was completely different. And it's interesting that so many museum professionals, as well as, as we've seen, archaeologists and Egyptologists, also kind of um, borrowed that same way of thinking and applied it to the things that they collected through presentation in the club's exhibitions, as well as their catalogs. So they are very much connoisseurship texts written by collectors who are using kind of a curatorial approach to it. Mm. I think. You're absolutely right. You know, today we discard connoisseurship and, and nobody likes to call themselves a connoisseur anymore. Um, and yet at the time, really, you know, most of this material was new within their country, at least, you know, and there was little scholarship or expertise that could draw on from, from kind of previous years. Um, and so how else to kind of go about classifying, judging, um, cataloging and whatnot, pieces, objects, art um, that you've not seen before, that you've not encountered or studied. So. Well, fortunately for them, um, connoisseurship was something they practiced, they respected, they experienced. And as I said earlier, because everything was presented as art in their terms, it meant that they could use their experience as connoisseurs of art to classify material that was unfamiliar. Because once everything is art, you can apply the same type of approach to that kind of material. And that, in turn, is what made them innovative in their approach to a lot of things, you know, like what we call African art, um, collectively today, Pacific art, et cetera. Okay, I'm going to, um, yeah, I'm going to ask you a kind of a question that I thought I'd put to the very end. But um, I think now is the right time to ask it. What do you think today you know, because we'll get to um, the end of the club in the 1950s. But before that, what do you think we can learn from the Burlington Fine Arts Club today and carry out into the future, whether we consider ourselves as art historians, archaeologists, ethnographers, art collectors, or museum professionals, or all of the above? Well, I think the most important thing is that we have to accept, and I say accept because a lot of people will be reluctant to accept this, that the private collectors played a significant, if not primary role in the development of art history, as well as other collecting related disciplines, as in archeology span and anthropology. And that all of these disciplines, if I just take these three as an example, were founded by private collectors and were grounded in the collecting of things. Now today, we look at this in a completely different way, particularly the collecting of non-Western material, some of which is rightly controversial, but I think what we can take away from this is that in spite of that, we have to acknowledge the importance of the private collector in all of this activity and also consider that this is one significant branch of exhibiting activity. When we look at the history of exhibitions, we also tend to focus on institutional exhibitions. But in fact, as I've shown in the book, it was private exhibitions 
that really shaped so many aspects of art historical practice in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in Britain. And you've really done pioneering work with this book, looking at um, the exhibition practices and also the publishing um, of um, of catalogues and whatnot. And there's definitely more work to be done there. So thanks so much for kind of um, going into that uh, field already as a pioneer, so to speak. Um, the club does end, however, sadly, in 1950, uh, when the club's general committee voted to voluntarily liquidate the club. Um, apart from the obvious reasons, such as the Second World War, um, why had the club's purpose, its aims and goals not survived post-war? Well, it's a little bit complicated, but essentially, yes, the war was kind of a turning point because obviously people, I mean, surprisingly, people did continue to collect and display art during the war, but for the most part, um, people just could not expend that sort of energy on, you know, what was seen at that time, rightly, as something fairly frivolous. They needed to spend their money on other things and not, you know, their annual fees for the club. They didn't have the ability to go to the club because of the Second World War. I mean, London was very heavily bombed, including the club premises itself. So that was a big part of it. Um, another big part of it was possibly also as a result of the war, London club land, as it's generally called, the, the complexion of it really changed. Um, people had less of a desire to have this kind of gentlemanly lifestyle. They were less able to have um, kind of two sides of their lives. You know, their gentlemen's club in London, their country estate somewhere else in England or Scotland or Ireland, as it happened. So that was another part of it. It was financial, it's social, but there are also, for this particular club, other competing interests for the members, but other locations for which or where people could see art. Um, we know that museums obviously existed in the 19th century, but as I've shown, many of their exhibitions were populated by art from private collectors. That really changed. Um, in the 20th century, museums were developing their own collection. Um, museums like the National Gallery had been founded in the 19th century with a private collection, and they started showing many more exhibitions. They, basically, the climate in the art world also changed. And then a really significant factor, which seemed minor, but actually I think it was kind of the death knell for the club, is they lost their lease on the building. And it would have cost a fortune to restore the building after the war um, and to pay for a new lease. So they tried to find an external additional premises identified premises, but they were very expensive and members were either unable or unwilling to fund um, the new lease on a building and also effectively restarting the club. And so it was agreed probably quite rightly to wind it up in 1950. But of course, the great beneficiary of that um, was the National Art Collections Fund, which had been founded by members of the Burlington Fine Arts Club. Great. Thank you. Um, and Yet, you know, just apart from that legacy, the legacy the, the, of the Burlington Fine Arts Club basically lives on to this day in the form of provenances of its um, kind of well-known members. And you end on that note as well with a recent um, exhibition catalogue where the provenance is really 
um, on one collector who was part of the Burlington Finance Club and this piece exhibited therein. Could you um, say a few more words on how common it is to um, find these provenances today and, and what this tells us about the, the legacy of the Burlington Finance Club? Well, having written a book, of course, I see it everywhere. Um, but you know, it's quite clear, looking at it, um, you know, critically, that in whenever I look at exhibition catalogs of the material that was collected by members of the club today, um, sale catalogs for auction, wherever there is a connection to the club or one of its exhibitions, it is cited in the provenance history of that object. So clearly, it is considered a desirable provenance to have, either for an exhibited object or an object that was owned. And what that tells me is that this club, while still, you know, even having written this book, I don't feel that the generally art historians are very much aware of how important it was. Um, it's still, still actively impacting the legacy of collecting, of fields of art, of art history, because don't forget the catalogs are also cited in art historical writing. So whenever I see um, books about you know, Persian art, which is often conflated with Islamic art, um, there's always a citation to the Persian um, exhibition mounted by the Burlington Fine Arts Club. In the ceramics world, their exhibitions are seen as groundbreaking turning points. It's constantly cited. And so I feel that the club is perhaps getting the recognition that it should in some levels, um, but I think people should acknowledge that really it was a place where people collected art and was brought together by private collectors who themselves need further acknowledgement because even in market terms, the club has proved to be lastingly influential. Great. Thank you so much for um, alerting us all to uh, the importance of the Burlington Fine Arts Club. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Well, thank you for inviting me to talk about it. Um, and yeah, this is... <laughs>